0: It has to have some weight and merit to it because essentially the people's serviceability will affect their ability to buy homes. So for anyone at home, you know, using a really general rule, banks will lend you, say, six times your income. So that's what we call a debt to income ratio. So by that sort of train of thought, if the median sales price is more than six times what most people earn, then they can't physically get the serviceability to buy a home. That's the very, very basic way of thinking about it.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to inside Insider, the only podcast that you need to listen to if you want to create a life of freedom, choice, and abundance through property investing, because that's what we are all about. And joining me on today's episode is Sean Simpson. Sean has recently become the head of property at Dashdot, and we dig into some of the hidden secrets that are unfolding in the Australian property market right now. This is an episode jam-packed with insights, with stats, with numbers, we look at the history, we look at the future, we look at what is going on right now, and there's going to be some wild stuff in there that you will never hear anywhere else. So if you're interested in becoming a successful property investor and navigating the current property market in Australia, then you better Wrap your listening gear around this episode. But before we get into it, make sure you share this episode, make sure you subscribe, make sure you engage with this content. It helps us to make better content for you, it helps us to know what you like, and also helps us to get this fantastic information out to more people. Our goal is to help as many people as possible become successful property investors and live a life of freedom, choice, and abundance, and you can help us do that by clicking a little button. So off you go, do that, and let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Welcome back to Dash. Insider. Joining me on today's episode is Sean Simpson. Sean has been on this podcast a few times before. And I think, I'm not certain, but I think every single time he's come on the podcast, he's had a new title. And so we didn't want to break tradition this time around. Sean has now elevated his way all the way up to head of property. Sean, congratulations on the big move. And also, how are you?
0: Thank you very much. Um, very well, thank you. Very well. <laughs>
1: sure, you weren't expecting
0: that kind of an intro, so
1: um, but it's great to have you back on the uh, episode. That's big one. It, indeed. Last time we spoke about some stuff, it was super insightful and really well received by everyone who listened to it. I wanted to um, pick up a conversation with you specifically because in the background, you and I have been talking about all kinds of funky gyrations that are happening in the property market and they're so, the, the conversation has been so interesting. I said, Sean, man, we've got to do this on the podcast. And so, here we go. So, we'll tell us what is
0: going on in the property market in Australia right now from what you can see. Some pretty interesting stuff going on. Um, so, I'd say probably the most, the most uh, prominent thing that we have noticed and that we've been hearing a lot throughout the property team is not enough properties to buy, which is a, a bit of an interesting problem to have. Um, so that led us to sort of do a bit deeper dive, start looking all over Australia. We've actually found not just in sort of one one area, one state, one sort of section, we've sort of found multiple areas across Australia, different LGAs uh, currently have the lowest gross volume of new listings. So essentially how many new homes are put up for sale every single month. They're currently at the lowest point they've been on average for about 17 years. So since around 2006, obviously varying one side or the other, um, but yeah, phenomenally low uh, new stock hitting the market in all over Australia. Why do you think that is? I think it's an it's an interesting question um, to ask because it, it is different in the regions and compared to the capitals and based on affordability and there's a lot of different sections that we could we could take this. Um, but one thing that one thing that I have found quite interesting was that uh, interest rates are actually I think somewhat having a bit of an inverse effect to what a lot of people think they have on property supply. So you see a lot of people, interest rates go up, they think, oh, we got like a fire sale inbound, everyone's going to, you know, no one can afford their payments, everyone's going to sell their homes. Essentially, what we've seen is sort of the opposite where everybody thinks interest rates up, not a great time to sell. So unless they are quite literally forced to sell, most people are holding onto their assets um, in anticipation for, you know, we'll sell when interest rates go down, we'll sell when it's a better time to sell. Um, so yeah, that's actually causing a restriction of volume. Uh, rather than an oversupply, which some people might think. All uh, right, that's pretty interesting. So let's let's dig into that, because the thesis there would be something like,
1: property prices are down, therefore sellers think it's a bad time to sell, therefore less stock available. What part of that statement
0: is untrue? Well, property prices are down. is probably a good one to <laughs> knock off straight away, because they certainly aren't. Um, but yeah, I think... A big thing that people sort of, sort of, um, you know, get get wrong is essentially that when interest rates go up, they think that you know, mortgage stress, which is often uh, thrown down our throats in media, is is a big effect on a lot of people when they're not taking into consideration that most people, and especially in affordable areas, buy with a reasonable buffer of affordability, um, and relative affordability is probably a, a good direction to take this. Um, but yeah, so I I'd say it depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends on a whole lot of things. Well, what I find what
1: I thought what I find interesting though is that like the the presupposition is that yes there'll be some kind of a fire sale and then all of these people are going to start selling all their properties and as interest rates go up there should be more stock on the market because everyone's saying we can't afford our houses and so all this stock should be flooding onto the market at the same time people are going we can't afford to buy houses because interest rates are up and so therefore what that this is the kind of general thread is that that kind of thing will happen. Which would lead to an oversupply on the market, a lack of demand on the market, and property prices would crash. And that's what happens when interest rates rise. That's kind of the idea. However, as we've just pointed out, and we'll we'll clarify it again, property prices haven't been going down. Even in places like Sydney, where property prices had been falling significantly, which, if anyone wants to go back a couple of years on this podcast... You'll hear me saying as prices have gone up in Sydney, I, I was saying they are going to come down again significantly. Yes, everyone got caught up in the craze and they thought that was the new normal. And lo and behold, they, you know, they stacked it again. So, but even, even despite that, even as interest rates have been rising over the last, you know, continuing to rise over the last couple of months, prices even in Sydney have started to go up again. Now, let alone other areas, regional areas, other capital cities where prices have continued to rise consistently and steadily. Even though interest rates have been rising, nonetheless, nonetheless, sellers, for some reason, think it's a bad time to sell, and you can only attribute that to media noise, media sentiment, all that kind of stuff. Because pragmatically speaking, they're in, in many cases, in a place where the property prices are going up, and demand is actually exceptionally high. So theoretically, it would be a great time to sell. Yet at the same time, they're reducing their, cap- they're like, you know, they're holding their cars to their chest. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. No, I've got a, a great example of that. Like in a regional place in in South Australia, we actually had an agent tell us that it was, it was really funny. It was like, you know, he had a listing that, that we're essentially going to buy off market. And they withdrew the listing uh, based on the fact that they'd been doing some of their own research and auction clearance rates are down and like it's not a great time to sell, which you know, more than likely we can point towards where headlines describing things that may have possibly been happening in super high MSP areas in major capitals, which actually prevented a seller in regional South Australia from selling in a market that that precise market I had a look at, it's got, um, currently it's got half the supply of properties that it did in 2000, uh, sorry, a quarter of what it did in 2019 and a half since um since 2021, and over that same time, um, demand's been up about 15. percent So by all metrics, an amazing time to sell. Um, but it's interesting how sort of media based on entirely different markets can sort of shape the uh, decisions of people in completely different areas. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's
1: really, it's really, really interesting because yeah, there's like two, there's two, two key parts of that that are interesting. That it's the lack of supply on the market, but then it's also that prices are proving. Over time, to be counteractive to, or you know, c- counter trending to uh, interest rate rises as well. So you mentioned relative affordability. What, what do you mean? What do you mean about that? Let, let's let's talk about that and what, what impact do you think that's having?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way to to differentiate sort of where we've seen these patterns of dropping supply and where we've seen supply sort of stay the same, if not creep up a little bit. Um, so relative affordability can be figured out a whole lot of ways, and it's quite an interesting thing to think about. Um, so essentially, what we're talking about there is you know, basically household income or personal income, or however you want to measure it against what a median MSP would be. So, you know, say what is an MSP for those
1: of, for for those people who don't work in property every single day? <laughs>
0: Do this every podcast, yeah. The um the median sales price are essentially what a, a normal house would cost to buy in that area. So, in terms of relative affordability. Um, you could be seeing sort of places in major capitals where we've seen the supply stay about the same or potentially go up a little bit. Generally, really expensive places where people have stretched themselves quite significantly to get into a home. So their household income, in comparison to what they had to pay for the home, is quite high. So essentially, they're they're really pushing it to get in there. So those sort of people are the are the most affected by by interest rate rises. So they would would in theory follow the trend of the whole you know fire sale we can't afford it anymore which is quite interesting actually um one of the members in our team lives in a, a quite central area of brisbane and she said it was funny there hasn't been you know that they're looking for homes in there at the moment and there hasn't been too much getting around and she said just the last two rate rises all of a sudden it's like everyone's just given up and gone not had enough too expensive and put all this um supply up whereas in in contrast in like more stockholders come on the market has, is that don't just want to clarify. So yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, she lot- said. All of a sudden, people have said, nah, had enough." That's the last interest rate rise. And you think, you know, when you when you're buying homes at two three million dollars, the, the recent interest rate rises are not an insignificant amount of money on your repayments. Whereas, sort of what we're talking about, which has the the inverse reaction, are places where the relative affordability is quite strong. So, say the median household income might only be, you know, two thirds of what it is in Central Sydney, but the house pr- house prices are. An eighth, a tenth—you know—significantly lower. You might be able to buy a home for four hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars, and the median household income is still, say, you know, fifteen hundred dollars a week, or whatever the example is. That um, in those cases, people haven't stretched significantly to purchase the homes, and therefore they're not as much as the headlines might say they're in mortgage stress or whatever it is. Um, that they're, they're definitely not pushed the same as the people in those those higher priced areas.
1: Yeah, I think people got to consider um, discretionary spending as well. You know, like this whole idea that interest rates go up and the first thing people are going to do is start selling their house. I mean, it's just bonkers. You know, like I'm not suggesting that this is a good thing by even a long, long measure. But you know, people will choose to forego other other things in their lives before they choose to forego their house. They will they will buy the cheaper brand of coffee. They will stop going out to the movies. They will stop having takeaways. Sorry, no holidays this year. I've just sold okay. my boat. I <laughs> so, <laughs> just sold your yeah. boat. <laughs> I've just, I just sold ask, it last weekend. Is it for, the, I, I, is it for that reason or t- listening into that? It's interesting.
0: No, not not for that, not for that reason. But the funny thing is, sort of looking at, at boats, is are like perfect example discretionary spending. Like for for the listeners at home, I li- live up in Cairns, so it's a bit of a playground up here. But it's funny over over COVID. Dirt bikes, jet skis, boats, like discretionary spending with all this money sloshing around in the economy was, must have been just through the roof. And that's somewhere where you sort of are seeing a fire sale at the moment. Not this podcast is about supply and demand of jet skis in Cairns. But, yeah, it's interesting that that is definitely the first thing that people forego. They start to sell, you know, there's plenty of other levers like that they could pull well before they go, you know, give up the house and home sort of thing. I wonder if there's a new
1: metric we can get in there, you know, like, you know, the relationship between jet skis, jet per sales, or... yeah, <laughs> jet skis sales, sales. Yeah, jet ski sales, sales per capita, and property price movements. Just like um, Gabby's. Um, the, the holden theory of growth so she believes that the more, oh, yeah. the, more ho- the more holden's that you see parked on the front lawn the more likely you
0: are to see growth in a location so, yeah. so maybe there's a relationship yeah. between Yeah has got a few jokes stuff. like that Yeah 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 indeed Yeah, yeah. like well, the old lounge on the lounge on the front veranda is another good one that's, I do a it's a good sign screamer if i see a lounge yeah. on the on the on the front porch i <laughs> like
1: dollar signs let's go so Perfect. okay cool so <laughs> so relative affordability so um just to make sure we kind of stitch that up we're basically talking about the capability of people on you know location specific assessment their capability to afford the the in, to, in, for, to afford the properties right be, it, be it rent or mortgage so we're talking about basically median income versus median sales prices being the measure and How have you seen that play out in those locations? Like, have you seen sort of any localised distribution of this kind of theory?
0: Yeah, because it's an interesting one to sort of think one layer deeper that, you know, with the, the prevalence of sort of geographically remote investing, relative affordability can become quite interesting because you can have people based in these greater capital cities that have started investing in these more affordable places, which to them, for the investor in Sydney, they might be able to buy in, far north WA and and relative to them that is incredibly affordable but then something you have to consider is for far north WA the uh people in the the main pool of buyers is going to be local peepa- people in which case if they're moving from the not so great side of town to the other side of town and they're going from $350,000 to $450,000 their relative affordability for that home and if they're the single buyer pool for it is is far less than the the investor from over in Sydney so it's very interesting to sort of think about, yeah, the, the relative side of that and then where the demand is going to come from in the end. But yeah, sort of something that we are seeing within the same LGAs, which is, is sort of the, the intra-LGA migration, is that, yeah, with these interest rates, we are sort of seeing uh, within, the same, within the same LGA, different suburbs performing quite differently. So you might get a suburb that's a little bit more of the swankier part of town and in in regards that it is a little bit relatively less affordable for people that have already lived in that lga that might starting that might be starting to perform a little bit worse on on sort of standard metrics supply demand vacancy rates on so forth and places where say the rents the msp are below the median of the area of the whole lga they're starting to perform a little bit stronger so you are sort of seeing people not only relocating across Australia, but also relocating within the same LGA, which I believe is actually a, probably a stronger driver um, than the all-over-Australia migration. Uh, yeah, pushing to those sort of little bit more affordable places within the same LGA. Why do you think that that is a
1: stronger driver than interstate migration?
0: I think this is an interesting one. It depends where you're looking. So I think i said this once before on the um on the podcast, but if you're looking at, say, let's just pull a, a Newcastle or a Wollongong or something like that, You can associate the relative affordability based on people in Sydney to move to Newcastle or Wollongong because for them, that's not a crazy, crazy move. But if you're going to invest in, let's say, Alice Springs, you want to invest in and you say, that is a great investment because relative to me in Sydney on $300,000, that's incredibly affordable you're missing a huge piece of where a great deal of the demand, especially for renters, is going to come from because you can't take the whole of Australia's median income and say relative to that, it's very, very affordable because it's not everyone in Australia that's going to move there and live there and live in your rental at the end of the day. It's going to be more than likely a great percentage of the, the demand for that is going to be local people. So it's more it's probably more critical to assess the local relative affordability than it is your personal affordability to purchase the home.
1: So makes sense. So you mentioned early on that it's the lowest stock levels in like 17 years. What what happened last time when look you talked talk, you actually had some really interesting insights, not just about what happened last time, but what the environment was like seventeen years ago. Do you want to share some of those insights like interest rates, inflation? Cause it's pretty interesting.
0: This yeah, this one was funny. All of a sudden, I thought I um, discovered fire last week because I really went down the rabbit hole for a couple of days on this. Because um, you know, we we discovered that all these other place, all these places across Australia were at the same low point as they had been about at the same time in say early to late two thousand and six. So then, with so then that drew me to think, you know, well, what happened straight after that? Which interestingly enough, in in that environment, it lined up nearly perfectly to what we're seeing now. It was like. The headlines were record high inflation at nine percent. Interest rates had busted up for quite a few months. Uh, considerably, oh, hang on a second, big media headlines about you Say inflation was nine percent. I double check my numbers there. I'm fairly certain. Um, I did have all the statistics down, but it was it was yeah. I'm fairly certain it was nine percent or above. And this news article that I was reading, it was it was pretty substantial. Um, and the cash rate was above the cash rate was above five from top of memory as well.
1: That is so fascinating, right? Because Everyone has a really short memory, and everyone thinks that the current reality is only based on their most recent um, alternative perspective, and I'd love to kind of dig into this a little bit as well, because like the the whole kind of, I, w- I want to know what happened 17 years ago, but, but allow me to go on a little side quest here, because I think it'll be valuable. There's probably going to be some treasure on this side quest, I think. So people f- are freaking out. Inflation's high. Oh, my God. Ah. People are freaking out because interest rates are high. Oh my god, are uh, compared to how they've recently seen them or felt them. You know, 2% interest rates, less than 2% inflation, all of that kind of stuff. And then even in the during COVID, it was like all of these property markets, 90% or whatever of the property markets went up. So therefore, people normalized that the whole thing moves in one way, you know, in one kind of homogenized way. In fact, normalizing rather than normalizing the fact that generally that never happens in fact that's a freakish occurrence but then also going back and if you could if you could jump in a um a time machine and go back 17 years or 10 years because i know like 10 like back in like 2010 and stuff like that interest rates were pretty high then as well you can go back to these times when interest rates were significantly higher if you could go back then and invest the question is would you and 100% of the time is normally yes yeah 100% of the time the answer is yes it's like oh my god like would i have gone back then to invest so so sorry to kind of cut you off there but yeah inflation so 17 years ago we're not going to hold you to this we don't expect you to be a
0: no i've got the i got some numbers up so it's all good but it's exactly what you said it's a lot scary it's it's potentially a lot scarier environment than um we've got now and it's funny what happened directly after it like you're looking at i've got record high inflation at nine percent cash rate was at six percent found a whole lot of nasty headlines about the you know impending property doom as as per usual and then funnily enough in the regions, so the exact regions that i have found right now to have this low supply the last time they had the same supply i wish i could share some graphs with the people watching it on youtube but it is a rocket ship by all definitions like you're looking at I'm just even pulling one area up here that's gone from two hundred thousand dollars MSP uh, median sales price. Sorry, at two thousand six, started two thousand seven. at over four hundred, like a doubling in in a year or so. And hang on, hang on, hang, that's hang that's on. That's the norm, not the exception. Can you say that again? Because that
1: that's. So you're saying that in one of the locations, your this example, you at do. You want to share the location? You know, let's let's yeah. let let's yeah, let them so in on I've a secret. It, let's just,
0: tell them. Let's let them in. So it's a single suburb in Mandra LGA, south of Perth. So I've got that one. So perfect, perfect example. I've got January or December two where at. Oh, actually, sorry, I might have got scales wrong here, but I can jump across the next suburb that I have left the scales on. Because uh, it's nearly nearly as good, so I've got a suburb north of Perth um, that is even. Yeah, January two thousand six, you're looking at two hundred thousand dollars ish, and by say December two thousand seven, you're looking at very high threes, say three seventy five plus. Go all the way up to Queensland. I'm going to have to zoom in, <laughs> zoom in close here, but all the way up to Queensland. I've got a very similar story where what do we got here 2006 you're looking at like 275 and by the time 2008 gets around you're looking at 360 375 like it's it's very much the same and we're not just talking about sort of one like one section of the country you're talking about you know significant movements, the same sort of direction right across. The- What's
1: interesting about that is it's not even like uh, location specific. So it's not like, hey, what we saw in West Australian suburbs was X. It's it's in multiple states and in suburb types that are significantly different. So different economic drivers and different sizes, right? So some are in kind of like regional cities, some are in regional towns um, and they all have different economic drivers. So what's really interesting about that is it points to something that um, happened in a kind of unified way across multiple markets. And one of the things that I'd like to point out on that thread as well is that it wasn't, like you pointed out to me, um, which led to us kind of doing this podcast, this kind of like 2006 to 2008 kind of spurt. But in many cases, actually, it, it carried on until 2012. And so it what that also points to is that there is differences between the locations and also the total timeline, but nonetheless, what we saw was a significant inflection point, like a like a dogleg in the entire median sales price in those locations at a specific point in time where inflation was higher than it is right now, when interest rates are higher than they are right now, but when stock levels were at the same level they are right now with the same amount of pent-up demand. So have I sort of got that right?
0: Yeah, 100%. Uh, that's bang on.
1: So, that's pretty fascinating. So, what do you think, how do you think people should be acting in this kind of, with this new information that's just been presented? Well,
0: it's a bit of an interesting one, but based on the, you know, based on what happened last time, it's again, it's one of those things where you can't, you you know, you can't just automatically presume that things will act the exact same way as they did last time. We are in a, a you know, a different environment. There's been a multitude of different things that happened during COVID. There's people have, you know, left out of cities. There's, you know, internal migrations, a little bit different. There's all sorts of different things to consider. But in taking that into consideration, it's definitely a good indicator that based on the macroeconomic environment, that has never prior it resulted in a, you know, absolute doom of the property market. The last time that the environment was significantly worse, we had an enormous growth spurt. And it's definitely a good indication that it's still an excellent time to be buying in property.
1: And it's funny, isn't it? Because um, interest rates continued to rise all the way through to 2008, 2009. And then- Got the graph,
0: it was up to about seven on the cash rate. rate, So got a lot worse than we've got now. Yeah, and
1: it's (laughs) really funny because everyone thinks that interest rates and property prices are highly correlated. And you know interest rates were going up. So during this little window that you're talking about there, interest rates continued to rise precipitously. And at the same time, property prices rose precipitously. Then the GFC hit. And then, um, because of the financial crisis, they dumped the cash rate in order to stimulate the economy. So interest rates went through the floor, just like, I can't remember, like multiple percent, whole percentages down in the space of like 12 months. At the same time, property prices took a dip, (laughs) which is interesting, right? Because what that actually points to is it's got nothing to do with the interest rates, it's got a hell of a lot more to do with. Things like consumer confidence and supply and demand and population and you know like any number of sixty other factors that we've got built into the models. So what do you think? Um, what do you think is driving some of these locations that you can see? Do you think it's just a supply issue? Do you think it's just like there's not enough stock on the market, or do you think there's underlying other underlying drivers?
0: Um, I think it, it depends on the area. I think probably one one interesting thing that we have seen is like you said, COVID was such a macroeconomic, unifying kind of event where all of a sudden a lot of markets in Australia started performing very, very similarly to different extents. Um, whereas now what you're seeing is all the different, or especially what I'm seeing, is all the different areas, because we buy all across Australia, are starting to perform a little bit differently. So they're breaking away from that, you know, if you're looking at a graph, you can see COVID virtually the same to different extents in every single area and now off the back end of that you're starting to see them all move differently so it could be different drivers for different places but um, yeah if I was just going to pull examples like there's interesting places where you know the exodus to affordable lifestyle is still a huge driver like you know I know Queensland immigration statistics have been through the roof so that's causing you know demand to stay really strong while supply like we mentioned is really low that might be be one thing and then you know on the other side of the country it might be an entirely different driver but that's where it's quite interesting, where you know, we're definitely coming into a time where, although interest rates is the big news in in the sort of macroeconomic environment, a lot of the sort of intrinsic LGA based drivers are sort of definitely taking the the driver's seat.
1: Yeah, and what do you think? What do you think some of those kind of core drivers are? Like, do, do you think it's just, you know, we've talked about affordability, right? And so, do you think people are just moving where it's cheap because that's where they can afford to be, or do you think it's kind of more like if you if you think about the kind of holy trinity of Location selection, so lifestyle jobs and affordability. Do you think affordability is the core driver, or do you still think it's other things like lifestyle, or do you think it's other things like you know jobs and um, economic opportunity? What do you think? What do you believe is kind of underpinning most of the demand?
0: Mm. Well, my my theory is actually with a lot of the places that we buy that there's different weighting across that sort of holy trinity that we talk about in different places. Like, for example. I've just moved up to, to Cairns and a lot of a, a huge amount of the drive for, for what I've seen in Cairns, even the huge amount of people that I've seen move up here has been, you know, purely lifestyle based. There's not, you know, there has to be jobs for them up here, but there's not one big economic sort of project or driver or something where you're like, that's why everyone's moving up here. Whereas, you know, in a, in a complete different example, if you're looking over in Western Australia, down South, there's a huge amount of investment into there. Um, a lot of jobs being created for, you know, things like Tesla contracts for, you know, lithium mines and all the, these sort of other drivers that might be a lot more stronger, strongly weighted in an area like that. So I think it's a combination of the three, but I think you've got to be really nimble in how you assess things because they can have far different effects in different areas depending on where you are in the country.
1: Going back to relative affordability, more specifically, I kind of want to, like, dial in a little bit on um, localised affordability, more specifically... Um, median wages, right? So what do you what are your thoughts around the idea that prices will move in concert with the change in median salaries in a location? Do you think that's got any weight to
0: it? It's it's an interesting argument because it has to have some weight and merit to it because essentially the um, people's serviceability will affect their ability to buy homes. So for anyone at home, you know, using a really general rule, banks will lend you say six times your your income so that's what we call a debt to income ratio so by that by that sort of train of thought if the median sales price is more than six times what most people earn then they can't physically get the serviceability to buy a home that's the very very basic way of thinking about it Um, but that's essentially it doesn't take in a huge amount of other factors as to where people would want to live you know where people with larger wages might be moving another really interesting thing that we've found i don't want to give away too much of the secret sauce but we've actually found um some really really interesting we've built our own sort of way of measuring socioeconomic levels and we've found an extremely strong correlation with the movement of that socioeconomic level and uh and median sales price growth which i won't give away everything that goes into it but that does lean towards you know as you as you can sort of presume a lot of wealthier people can move to an area for a certain reason it might be a school that's really highly ranked or you know a lot of you know lifestyle factors there might be a great cafe strip whatever it is people can start to flock to that area with higher incomes they can start to put through uh, larger building approvals for high high cost renovations which will start to bring values up and that can start to have dramatic effects on on median sales price so i think there's an awful lot that goes into it but there's definitely merit to the um to the argument that that the movement of wages and, and salary and household income does have an effect to people's access to the properties of that area.
1: Looking forward at where you think things are going, do you think that we're going to continue to see, um, you know, the same types of locations continuing to perform well over the next 12 to 24 months? Do you think that there's going to be any major changes over the next 12 to 24 months? What do you, what do you see happening? Like, what do you see? It's great so that we can kind of see these things in the now, but, like, where
0: do you see things are going? Mm-hmm. It's a tricky one. I was starting to become the the oracle at work, which is getting getting quite tricky. But um I'd say currently, based on what we've seen and based on these sort of patterns that we're looking at um right now, I would say the regions, especially that we've been purchasing it, purchasing in are in for a Ripper twelve to twenty four months. Obviously we're gonna be nimble and watching how those they change over time after that. Beyond that is very hard to tell because um, these trends factor differently. The the last few times they've happened outside of that twelve to twenty four months windows, um, so it'll be a very interesting I'd say three to five years in Australian real estate, but I'd say a, especially for the next twelve to twenty four months based on historical data and what we're seeing at the moment, we're in for a really really strong couple of years. I want to just ask a
1: so I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but I've got a lot of thoughts going. I just um I just finished my coffee, so I think the bean juice has kicked in, and I'm and I'm like the 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 the, the the neurons are firing. Let's talk about let's talk about immigration and its effect on the kind of supply demand side of uh, side of the equation. So, um, you know, broadly speaking, there's lots of demand going out there, going on out there. And I was, you know, even if you look in the the city suburbs, there's lots of demand. Like in kind of blue chip Melbourne and blue chip Sydney, there's tons of demand in those locations. So. Do you think that's just a factor of the international migration? How do you see that mapping out over time? You know, we've talked about inter LGA migration, people moving within the current locations that, that they're in, which is kind of like changing the market dynamics of those specific locations. But how do you see this, um, you know, external stimulus, i.e., huge amount of international migration? How do you see that influencing the current state of play in the property market? But then also, what are your thoughts on how you expect that to map out over time?
0: Yeah, there's a very interesting argument, actually, where if you look at uh, migration statistics, uh, Australia for a very long time has had net internal migration outside of capital cities. But then they've got a huge amount of international migration into the capital cities. A lot of people, when they move internationally, they automatically move into the cities. So it's funny, when COVID started, you can sort of, if you look at migration statistics, evidently, international migration just about plummeted to zero because we closed borders no one was coming in so lots of those immigrants will normally move into capitals however at the same time a huge amount of people were leaving capitals to go to the regions um, for the exodus to affordable lifestyle while covid was going on so there is an argument that that is what caused the regions to outperform the capitals so well over the last you know couple of years since since pre-covid which is an interesting argument to to um, to make, and I'm sure it has a reasonable effect. How much effect it had is, is you know, something that would be very, very hard to measure. But now we're sort of seeing as we come out of that area, um, you know, net internal migration is still moving away from the capitals, and there's a hell of a lot of people moving to Queensland apparently for the sun as well. But now the international migration has turned right back up to sort of you know higher than it was pre-COVID levels. So that's probably what's you know driving the strong continued performance in the capitals now coming out of COVID. Um, how that'll affect capitals versus regions over the next 12, 24, 36 months will be be quite interesting. Um, But yeah, I think it's quite an interesting argument, the weighting between, you know, where Australians are moving within Australia and then where people from international tend to move within Australia as well and how that affects property demand. Yeah, I love it. And
1: uh, I'm just looking at one of our notes that we've got written here and I want to kind of shift that. I think that's a really interesting point, by the way, just to kind of close off and not to just jump completely to another topic. I, I strongly agree with you. T- like what we we'll tend to see is people kind of flowing into the capitals and then kind of pushing out to the regions, which kind of does lead on to the next point. It's around the whole idea of working remotely, work from home. I mean, For those of you who are listening to this and don't know, Dashdot is a 100% work-from-anywhere company. We have our team working from wherever the hell they want to live, anywhere in the world, and um, it's great. But that is an example of people being able to work where they want to be versus where they need to be. How do you see that changing the dynamic around the idea that growth operates in a concentric circle from capital cities? Because it used to be the idea that, like, you know, the CBD was the hub of activity. Everyone would go into the city to work. And so, therefore, value was created from the center outwards and value would radiate in this kind of ring. And so, this whole idea of like in a ring, the city, suburbs were the place to be. How do you see that changing now? What are your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah. To be fair, I think that's, that has been tipped on its head and I'll give it a few few examples. But funnily enough, that was my whole investment thesis before I started with Dash Shot. I thought, you know, my first two two sort of developments and so on that I did were buy the biggest block of dirt as close to the middle of the town as possible where I live. That was my whole thing and it worked great at the time. But coming out of that, you know, a, a great example that I'd like to use in a bigger centre, say where I am now, and this is sort of diving a little bit more into the commercial side, but I think people think it's quite interesting um, a lot of people are able to work remotely. That means that these sort of fringe CBD suburbs that traditionally a lot of their values derived from being so close to the the PGU or the point of greatest utility, you know, and getting that ripple effect out from the CBD was where they derived a lot of their value. With work from home now, in these larger centers, you're starting to see the nicer sort of, not remote, but say half hour from CBD suburbs where I am now performing really, really well. And another really interesting thing that I think shows this is that, um, vacancy rates in like s- standard retail in the middle of a CBD, so say where I am now, are uh, reasonably high and increasing, whereas the performance of like strip retail out in these nicer suburbs has been really, really strong. So very, very low vacancies, you know, the, the little cafes out in the suburbs with a little friendly grocer and you know the fish and chip shop are performing great because all these people are wanting to work from home out in the nice suburbs where they can get a big house and a big block but they still want to go and get their coffee in the morning but they don't have to trudge all the way in the cbd and buy their coffee in these sort of cbd places so i think that is is varying depending where you are you know if you're in a substantially regional area where you can run from one side of the town to the other what i'm saying might be a little bit less less relevant but in these bigger centers you're definitely seeing a um A push outwards from the PTU and from the point of greatest utility sorry I'm using the old acronyms again um but yeah so that that's definitely sort of tips the the traditional kind of um expansion from the CBD theory on its head I think
1: that's so interesting you know what that's that's also really interesting from a like a socio um like psychographic kind of uh element as well because what that's kind of pointing to is like more small businesses that are localized in smaller communities. So it's actually kind of pushes to more of uh, that kind of community nature of things, which when you think about working remote and working digitally and all that kind of stuff, you can naturally start to build this idea that everyone is just, you know, disparately spread around the country uh, working on their laptops. But actually what you can what what this kind of points to is potentially a renormalization of localized communities because people aren't diverting their attention to these kind of more centralized CBD-based hubs, which I think actually sounds great. I mean, that sounds awesome to me because I, yeah, I love going to places and, you know, being a, even though I move around quite a lot, but like, you know, building up some locality and, and, you know, actually contributing to your local community and being part of that community. I think it's an awesome thing. And I think it also points to a kind of more entrepreneurial shift uh, potentially in our in our society too. I, I I think that sounds great. Also points to a really really interesting opportunity in um in you know small strip uh, co- uh, commercial as well.
0: Yeah, and it, and it also probably substantiates the a little bit more of the argument I made before where intra LGA migration can be a stronger driver than inter LGA migration because we can quite often think you know people are moving for affordability and if uh, affordability and lifestyle and if broom in wa is the best affordability lifestyles like everyone from sydney is going to go to broom that doesn't necessarily that's an extreme example but that's not necessarily the case whereas say in cairns if you were living in the middle of the city there could be a huge amount of people that were in the city because it's close to the city and it has all that benefits who might then move to a suburb that's 25 minutes from the city they get a thousand square meters for the same price and that's caught that's a, a far greater amount of demand for both rentals and, or especially rentals, I believe, but rentals and owner-occupied homes um, than, say, people from Sydney have any Cairns, which is a far greater hurdle to jump over.
1: Love it. Sean, this has been awesome. Have you got any final tips for people who might be thinking about investing in the current environment?
0: No, I think I've I've given away all the secret sauce, so
1: <laughs> i leave it at that. <laughs> Awesome. Sean, thank you so much. Always love having you on. Great insights as per usual. Appreciate everything. Appreciate everything you do. See you on the next one.
0: Thanks so much.